Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the Daskamwana's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master and Dhamma friends, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. This is the 22nd of September. It's the autumnal equinox season, yesterday and today, and the first day of Libra, if anybody's keeping track. We're here at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, and we're looking into the Ten Grounds chapter of the Flower Garland Sutra. And we're in the third ground, the verses section. We're just finishing up. So please, if you will, turn to the front cover of your text here. We're going to recite the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and get underway. Namo. Oh, who's out 
Please turn in your text to page 68 and 69. And we have a uh, Vietnamese translation in the balcony going on, if people would like to take advantage of that. We're right up at the top of the, top of the page tonight. First paragraph. seen the Buddha's wisdom, he pities living beings as forlorn without support and unsavable. Unsavable. With the, okay, with three poisons blazes always vexing them. Dwelling in existence's jails ever suffering. Bodhisattva's progression through the third ground and this is the third stage among ten and the Bodhisattva is going through a unique awakening that happens. Each ground brings another level of of awakening in the, the Bodhisattva's mind and at this point he, uh, you'll recall as we've been going through he's he has watched reality dissolve around him. He's been watching things fall apart because his vision now lets him see right through the surface into the heart of things. And that is a shocker uh, for a while, but he then looks deeper than that, and he realizes that that's happening for everybody, because that, that's the nature of things. The nature of things is they're, they're, we mentioned what are called the three seals, the three hallmarks of dharmas, and that things are transient, they move on, they're uh, unsatisfactory they don't hit the spot and further you can't find anything in conditioned existence that has an intrinsic nature that can't be reduced to other things everything at the heart is they say empty and he empties out now his wisdom can empty out everything and as I say initially it's terrifying but after a while he realizes that if you can balance in the midst of that, 
and fully exist, fully be there at every moment, then it doesn't surprise him anymore when things fall apart because he realizes that's what they do. Everything is component. Everything is made up of other stuff. It doesn't have any permanent, irreducible, intrinsic nature to itself. And he doesn't invest emotional value in things. It's not that when something breaks, he he's upset because he can see how it is. Now, it doesn't mean the Bodhisattva is a piece of wood. Uh, he's He is fully emotional, but the emotions are not more important than the logic. The, in, the transient nature of stuff is not more scary than the empty nature of stuff. So he's now realigned his understanding of himself in the world around him, and his priorities are different, and he doesn't attach. That's, if you had to say it in a word, you'd say he doesn't stick to things. So when they they rise and fall, rise and fall, he lets that be, and he sees the, the wisdom in doing so. Now the challenge for him is to wake other people up to that same reality. That's his challenge. And that's where we pick up right now. He notices that everybody around him, all the people he cares about, who are still stuck on things, who are still attached to things being one way, hurt when they break up. They're not ready to let go. And he's, he wants to find a way to wake them up so that they can let go when things move on, as they always will, and find a balance in the wisdom and the compassion. So that's right where we are in the text. And it goes, Now, we, we talked about this verse last week. We talked about the three poisons and how they're, they're burning. And uh, we also mentioned that this English is uh, in need of a good massage. Our English is, is uh, not in, a, in its final form. We're still working on it. So. The, the thing that we didn't talk about, um, how beings are alone and nothing to rely upon, nothing to save them, uh, we didn't talk about existence being a prison. And this is, uh, is it a metaphor? Is the Buddha just using, you know, figurative language to show us that existence is like a prison? Um, you could see it that way, but I think it's much more real. Um, the bars, the, the prison, what's, what is it about a prison? You're not free to go. You can't leave when you want to in a prison because the door is locked. And something wants to leave, but it can't, right? From a prison, from a jail, from a locked door, from a room that you're locked in. The Buddha says, from his point of view, the Bodhisattva says that that's our karma that manifests in our body, that shows us our body, that's a jail. We can't, we can't leave samsara when we want to. We're definitely going to die. We're definitely going to come back. That's the prison that he's talking about. And it's really a prison. We're not free to come and go. Because our karma holds us back. So you know what they say. Um, we come to this world for one of two reasons. One, because the wind of our karma blows us here. 
or two because our vows led us here by choice. Now, a bodhisattva having, what's the quality of a bodhisattva? Ye jin, qing kong. Their karma has been burned away and their emotions have been emptied out. So with your karma burned away and your emotions emptied out, you're free to come as you choose, in whatever form you choose, and you're free to leave when you want to, in whenever you want to. So that's a real state of transcendence and mastery of those three hallmarks of dharmas. Um, so those, the three hallmarks, the three signs, the three dharma uh, signs, are like the ABCs of language. If you don't know the alphabet, you can't use a language, right? If you don't know how to, to read or write it, you can only speak it, you're limited in what you can communicate. Once you learn these three seals of Dharma, the three hallmarks, Sanfa Yin, you're free to, to come and go because you recognize it. You're, you've mastered the sense realm. So what are the existences? Well, there's various lists. The, j the jails of existence, talking about desire realm, form realm, and formless realm, which is kind of the world as we know it, um, including the heavens, which we don't experience. Unless you are secretly a deva here to listen to the Dharma, in that case, welcome. And uh, you can text us and tell us what's it like in the formless realm. In the formless realm, gods don't have bodies, they're just consciousness. And uh, their lifespan is very, very long. But it's still within mortality. They still come back. They still die and come back. Their lives come to an end. So it's really a jail. When you're no longer free, you can't come and go as you choose. And from the Bodhisattva's long vision now, he sees that in the end, when we change, when we leave this body, it's painful. It's suffering. So, dwelling in existence is jails, ever suffering. All right. Let's look down these verses. The, the next one is the turning point in the Bodhisattva's uh, progress through this third ground. And after the realization that happens in the next verse, then things change. What does he do? Because of what he sees in the next verse, he sets out to find a way to help, to help them, to save us. Okay? So, let's look at this next verse as the turning point in our little story. Each one of these grounds has a story. And this is the story. Here we go. Fanao chanfu mang umu by afflictions bound, they're obscured, they're blind, they lack vision. Their inclinations are low and base, they lose the Dharma jewel. They follow birth and death, they're frightened of nirvana. And I should, for their rescue, be diligent and vigorous. Okay. So here the Bodhisattva says, Hmm, I really see the nature of myself before, me before, and every living being. Which is what? We're, let's get rid of the pseudo-poetry here and, and just read it. Fan nao chan fu mang wu mu. Their afflictions tie them up. 
What would be an affliction that ties them up? Well, greed is a really good one. If we are greedy, we mentioned last week, nothing satisfies you. No matter how much you get, it doesn't hit the spot. The best stuff somehow always slips through your fingers. And you realize that I, I talked last week or was the week before about being in the Garden of the Four Seasons restaurant and having my tongue go numb. There I was in this place where, you know, one meal would have been the highlight of the summer. You talk about it with your friends for the next couple weeks or the next couple months. But eating there three meals a day was just a horrific experience because you couldn't taste anything. The seasonings all competed and your tongue quit. Who knew that the taste buds had a certain limit of stimulation beyond which they just go, ah, too much, can't taste it. So I, at a certain point, I went back to brown rice and steamed vegetables for the rest of the summer, and I tasted the broccoli. Goodness, broccoli, when it's fresh, has an incredible flavor. And you can just, every time you crunch a broccoli bud, it's boof, and your tongue goes, wah. That's broccoli. I, I tasted that cabbage. Cabbage, who knew how flavorful cabbage can be? If it's fresh and you steam it and you keep the flavor in it, and then, man, oh man. And if you add a little bit of salt, it's like salty cabbage. Oh my goodness, you know. So, and then a carrot has its own flavor. Potatoes, potatoes can be very flavorful when, you, when your tongue is un, unknown, not known, when your tongue is alive and able to taste it. But as long as you're piling on the, the salt and pepper and butter and sauce and bernays and, you know, spices, then your tongue just starts to lose its edge. So that's the problem with greed. Greed is a poison. It's a slow poison, but it's a poison, which is to say it will harm your well-being. If you take too much of it, it will kill something. Poison does that. So that's bound up by an affliction. You know, you... you always looking for the upgrade and you never get peace of mind. Always knowing that nine months from now the software is going to tell you you have to upgrade and there's no joy. You, you forget the wonder of it. So, bound up by afflictions, mangumu, blind, lacking vision. You can't see your way out of it. You can't see it. Um, one of the one of the things that uh, reliably put me into a different space as a kid growing up was looking at the stars. I grew up in Toledo, and because Toledo was right on the shores of Lake Erie, the, the air was pretty clear. There was always a wind off the lake. And Toledo was surrounded by... Um, Fields, you know, it was a medium-sized city of two hundred thousand people when I was growing up. Um, by Chinese standards, that's a village, but by Ohio standards, it's not tiny. It's medium-sized. It's bigger than that now, but back then the air was clean. And on a summer night, if you lay back in the grass once the sun went down, you could see lots of stars. And it was the quickest route to wonder for me was looking at the stars on the summer night. And at the right time, you get shooting stars. You know, and they're... Choo, 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 like 
uh, every couple seconds you get another shooting star. And that was amazing. You start to count. You take a square inch and you try to count the number of stars in a square inch. And, you know, for a kid, it's like, man, what are all those lights doing up there? How many are there? Oh, let's count, you know. So you try to count, and pretty soon your mind just goes, oh, you know. And then you realize at a certain point you grow up, you've stopped noticing the sky. It no longer holds any wonder for you. When is that? It's about the time that guys start to notice girls. You totally forget about the sky. You start looking right at the ground. Oh, let's see who's looking at me. I'm, I'm a, my checkery mirror, you know. Bad breath. No, I guess I'm okay. You, know? you start looking at girls, you know, and girls start looking at each other, you know, looking at guys, looking at shoes, you know. I don't notice shoes. Girls notice shoes. And it's like, stars, stars didn't go anywhere. Stars are still there. But it's like, you forget about the star. And then at a certain point, maybe after you're married for a while, and the dew is off the rose, you might go, oh, yeah. There they are again. They didn't go anywhere. In the last, I spent the last 12 years looking left and right, you know, wanting to know, do they like me? Am I popular? You know, that's the question of the adolescent. And stars go away for a while, you know. It's not that they went anywhere, it's just that our eyes stopped seeing them. We were looking for other kinds of light, you know. Light of, of friendship and social approval and things. So, living beings, right? we are numbed, our eyes are numb. And it's as if we can't see it. It's our vision suddenly gets dim. So, their inclinations, zhi, yao, xia, lie, living beings' inclinations are xia, lie, they, they drop. They're very interested in things like what? Power. Power. Um, sang, sang fa bao. They, sang is an interesting word here for the sutra. That's the verb. It means they um, uh, kind of, they we translate it as lose, but sang here is sorrow. It's also, it's to to do in, to lose, to harm, to mourn, to to get to kind of to get rid of. It's an interesting verb. That's an old old character. They do the they do the dharma jewel in. So in other words, instead of looking deeply into the nature of things, they not only stop with the surface, they want to manipulate the surface. They don't see people as opportunities to serve. They see people as potential votes. They see people as uh, allies to, to gain them the, the election or as customers, right? Your, your only value is your potential to benefit me. That's to lose the Dharma jewel because you don't see people as future Buddhas. You don't see people as Dharma friends. You see them as someone who can stroke your ego, someone who can 
profit your bottom line, right? Or worse, we're think that's still thinking positive. What if you look at living beings and say, oh, here comes the enemy because they're the hateful, the hated underscore, right? Um, I was hearing a really interesting uh, news analysis on NPR the other day as I was crossing the Richmond Bridge. And this guy was, uh, he had written a book debunking the myth of the Islamic takeover of the West. What was the name? Um, some some uh, second-class, second-rate scholar, they, I'm just reporting what I heard, I haven't read it, so I don't know, talked about Eurabia. She'd written the book, The Peril of the Coming Eurabia, meaning that Arabic... Uh, Islamic folks were going to come up from the Middle East and from Africa to take over Europe, the coming Eurabia. And this author who was being interviewed had written a book debunking that, that, that Europe is in no danger of being taken over and Western culture is not at risk by uh, Islamic culture. And he said, in fact, as he had his fingers on the pulse of the, the mutual interaction between Islamic culture and European, you'd say, uh, uh, Judeo-Christian culture. He said, currently, the state of Islamic culture in the West is identical with the arrival in the West of Catholics, Irish, Asian immigrants. In fact, Asian arrival in the West and Islamic arrival in the West are contemporaneous. Pretty much it's both happening right now. He said, this is just, the, they're just the, the fresh off the boat. It's just the latest one in the door. He says, don't worry. Islamic culture will be assimilated in the U.S. like every other culture has been. And we'll just have that accessible. We'll be able to look at the Prophet Muhammad and say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah he's another way to go. We, I know Islamic friends, my boss is a Muslim. You know, my neighbors, my classmates are Muslims. No different. He said, it's just that now it's still fresh. So it's perceived as a threat, just the way Irish culture was perceived as a threat. The slander of against uh, Irish folks was, was really fierce. My grandparents uh, in Canada had a very hard time for another reason. That's kind of interesting. That... Um, When my grandparents arrived in Canada, they settled in French Canada. And they were from Ireland, my father's family. They were from County Cork, right? And they arrived in, a, in the province of Canada that is, what is it, 92% French? And they were in the 8 or the 6% minority non-French, which regardless of whether you were from Holland or England or Ireland or Sweden or Japan, you were known as les mots anglais, the goddamned English. Les <laughs> anglais. You know, no matter who you were, as long as you weren't French, you were les mots anglais. So they were, they'd arrived, not only that, they'd arrived as Catholics. And of course, Quebec is mostly entirely Catholic. 
And so, because they were not welcome at the French Catholic Church, they had to become Protestants. And where they came from, that was like saying, you know, you switched from Republican to Democrat. I mean, that's Republican, Democratic Tea Party. To switch from Catholic to Protestant, if you're Irish, is like, my God. That's kind of like saying, I'm no longer going to eat food, I'm going to eat air. You know, and it's, you don't do that, you eat food. So, very interesting, but they found it uh, necessary to become Protestants in, in Quebec. So, that's how my grandparents became Methodists. Not by choice. So, my father talks about being chased home from school every day by French gangs, and he learned to fight because uh, he was beaten up every day. Uh, and that's the kind of, of uh, welcome that the Mozillanglais got in Quebec. So, and it was funny, when I was growing up, uh, I would always say, Dad, if you would speak French at home, I could learn French much quicker. And he would go, I speak French. <laughs> Because the French that he learned was being sworn at being cursed by the French gangs. So he didn't want to go back there. So it's like he never would. He wouldn't cooperate teaching me French at home. So, so yeah, so they, he says that, um, what do you do when you sang fava? If you sang fava here, he says you, you lose the Dharma jewel. It's because... You're looking at people's outsides and then manipulating them, right? Because you look like that, I know things about you. I, all my stereotypes kick in. You're blah, 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 because the labels stick, right? At a certain point when the new culture shows up, the labels stop sticking. Because you know them. Because you're on the bark with them. Because you do business with them. Boy, commerce is a main cultural assimilator, right? There were people who said, uh, there, I remember that was really interesting. There was a time when China and Taiwan could have gone to war. It was close. This is, thank goodness that time seems to have passed, although this current transition we'll see. But this was before there was any contact between Taiwan and China. And just a suggestion, there were guns trained across the Taiwan Straits and missiles. And people were saying, it may be the case, we're, we're watching a race right now between the animosity and the hatred, and you might say the karma, that puts brother and sister, literally brothers and sisters, across the Taiwan Strait. Same family, their name is Zhang, their name is Lin, their name is Chen. And these are communist red Chinese, and these are Republican Taiwanese brothers across the streets. Will their conflict win, or will their economic interests win? And they were they're called Laotong Warshaw. The old China hands were betting, and they were all putting their money on, yeah, the power of commerce will melt the political walls, some people say that because the Chinese value making money over being politically dogmatic, so we will see the rise of global capitalism will melt the animosity, that that is deeper 
the wish to mutually benefit each other with money. That's deeper than the political difference. Now, there was a theory 15, 20 years ago, and lo and behold, it seems that that's true. Because the animosity between the Chinese and the Taiwanese seems to be at its lowest. Now, I'm looking at it as a waihang. I'm an outsider looking in, but that seems to be the case. So, how interesting. And it could reverse, but the karma, it's not as simple as that, certainly. There's old, old, deep karma involved. However, it seems to be that, that the labels melt over time. And people are saying that the, the current uh, un- discomfort with things Islamic in the West uh, may well be vanishing uh, over time as people assimilate, as we get to know each other. Yeah. Yeah, please do. Yeah, that'd be good. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Their inclination is low and vile. They lose the Dharma jewel. They follow after birth and death, frightened of nirvana. Okay. Living beings, what do we like? We take samsara, we take birth and death as the standard, as the way things are. Okay, and the idea of freedom is terrifying. The idea of freedom really scares us. How funny, right? There was a, a when we were still getting used to psychology and, and new ideas. Um, Eric Fromm, people know, flight from freedom. Okay, Eric Fromm was the uh, right. It was Fromm. People remember anybody? Current with psychology. It's not current, this is back in the 60s. Eric Freedom wrote this, Eric, Eric Fromm wrote this book called Flight from Freedom. And it was a compelling title, it's really a genius title. But his, uh, his theory, which was current, you know, 20, 30 years ago, was that people can only stand a certain amount of freedom, that we prefer our chains. And too much freedom can be really terrifying, really intimidating. What an interesting idea, right? How much freedom do we want? Um, and you would think, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's guaranteed in the what? Declaration of Independence, right? Pursuits of life, liberty, meaning freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. So America, the West, is a place where we came here, although this here already had people living here, never mind, but we came here fleeing unjust taxes of King George of England. That was a large part of why people got on boats from Europe and came to the West, came to America, this new continent. As I say, never mind it. People already lived here. That's another story. So we got here seeking freedom and very quickly built the very same lack of freedom that we'd experienced in Europe. So interesting. He says, the the Bodhisattva says, living beings just cling to our death and rebirth. The idea that we might get free is a strange idea, frightened by nirvana. I should, for their rescue, be diligent with vigor, he says. That's really stilted English. What does he say? I should save them. I need to work hard. I should save them. I want to do it. Okay, here is the turning point. Now, 
Take a look at the whole chapter so far. The Bodhisattva has been analyzing the world around him and saying, yeah, it's falling apart all the time. Nothing lasts. If you could see, a, if you could do a slow motion on these flowers, what would you see? They come from a little bud, they do this glorious blooming, and then they go, whoa, and they're gone. If you could do a slow motion on uh, your own body, from gestation to old age, you see the same thing. You know, we bloom in youth, and then we get bent over, and we gone. It's like a flower. Our bodies do it. You'd see the planet come and go. Our planet is in a state of decline. It seems to be speeding up. Um, the latest projection, not to scare you, the latest projection is, should we have four more years like this summer? The polar ice cap will melt in four more years. You see, the, this, the rate of acceleration of melting based on this, this, the heat of this summer, the polar ice cap is good only for four more years. And then with the melting of the polar ice cap, north and south, they say that will take a whole bunch of the San Francisco Bay, goodbye to that San Francisco airport. Think of the inside of the bay, right? Most of, you know, maybe up to Fremont. Uh, Alameda, Alameda's not safe, friends. Right? All of you who live in Alameda, they say, if the polar ice caps melt in four years, the water will rise because... Water that is warmer takes up more space than water that is cold. As water contracts and becomes ice, it takes up smaller. When it gets warmer, it expands. They say the water on the edges of the continent, you know, think Vancouver, think New York City, bye. Think New Jersey, think Virginia, think Florida, think New Orleans. We've been used to that one. Imagine, just go around the edge, kind of with a with a black marker, magic marker, you know, <laughs> or highlighter. Just And I saw the projection. This is on boingboing.net. I saw the projection of how much real estate on the inside of the San Francisco Bay will be underwater. A whole bunch, like miles inland. You know, one oh, what is it, 980 going south will be underwater. You know, and you go, you one year, two years, 2012, 13, 14, 15. Why? It's because what used to be ice is going to be water. Because it's so hot. And you go, uh, that's real scary. Never mind. Let's see. Uh, what are we? World Series coming up. Uh, what if we can get the Oakland A's game? Yeah. Hey, the Giants are back in a wild card. Hey, you know. We can't take it. We don't want to know. Don't want to know. We fly from freedom. We turn our backs on nirvana. So the Bodhisattva says, Oh my God, I should rescue. I need to work hard. Because he sees it coming. Wake up. I need to wake them up. They're playing in the burning house. They're walking around in a piece of land that's going to be underwater soon. It's going to be beachfront real estate. <laughs> right? Fremont will be beachfront real estate. Why? Largely because we don't let go of our cars. And we take the fossil fuels, the, the blood of the planet, and burn them. 
And when we do, we create gases that the sun's rays bounce off of, not allowing the natural cycles of the planet to chill and to heat and chill and heat. And as a result, as those rays, the, the harmful rays come through, the scariest right now is a lot of Russia and Canada is permafrost, tundra, you know these terms. Tundra is permanently frozen. And they say underneath the tundra is lots and lots and lots of methane. Lots and lots. And of course, if they could cap it, they would have a lot of gas to, to burn. But they can't. And the faster it melts, the more the methane rises. And can uh, create more of the thing and so it heats up faster. Another, another big one, and this is of course preaching to the choir, people know this, but they say if humans would reduce their consumption of meat by 10%, it would delay the process. It would slow things down because more significant in the creation of carbon dioxide and gas greenhouse gases more significant than all the internal combustion engines combined. Now take planes going by. Anybody see Endeavor yesterday flying through the sky? All right. Yeah. Yeah. The space shuttle flew by. Its last mission yesterday. Um, more, if you take all the buses, all the mopeds, but, 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 spitting out there like smoke, right? All the uh, jitneys, all the cars, all the planes, putting out their exhaust, out their tailpipes, and add it all up together worldwide, it does not amount to the amount of greenhouse gases put out by cows and pigs. Cows and pigs put out methane gas through their tailpipes. They fart and they burp. Believe it or not, it sounds funny, but the exhaust out the, the two ends of animals that we eat creates more of a hazard every day, creates more gases that then cuts the, the amount of good rays, blocks the rays, than all the internal combustion engine combined. Who says so? The United Nations says so. When did they say that? They said it in, what, 2008 or something. And what did the world do? Well, the oil companies quickly squashed that, and the meat producers quickly squashed that. The U.S. Dairy Association said, no, we have studies that show that that's not true. Meanwhile, never mind, over here, does a body good? Got milk? You know. And it's the dairy and the meat cows that spit out the stuff that melt the ice on the planet. Are we going to eat less meat? No. Nope. Is McDonald's quickly marketing lots and lots of veggie alternatives? No. Like, they try it somewhere and then they go, no, people didn't buy it. They don't promote it. But what do you see? You see, you know, what was the, the latest... That the Big Mac, it was this time last year, it was the beef patties covered by cheese, covered by bacon. Instead of bread, they had it wrapped in chicken. What was it called? The what? 
the, the tough choice? No. It was called the something like that. And it had it was a funny name. It was like the the stomach bomb or something like that. <laughs> there was no meat in it. It was chicken wrapped with bacon or on a hamburger, you know, with cheese on top, melted. And it was selling like hotcakes. <laughs> selling like Big Macs. And <gasps> wow. So we what do we do? We run from Nirvana. We follow along with birth and death. And you think, okay, here we are going, ha, 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 we're stupid. Living beings are dumb. Living beings are bound by our karma. Yeah. This is not a joke. It's not funny. It's us. It's what we do here. This is where we are. And if that weren't enough, you know, we are building weapons. Who does that? Americans. We are the number one weapons makers and sellers. When the karma of that comes back, my God, you know, are we numb to, to mass shootings? We are. We don't, it's like it, it rises and it blinks. You hear, oh yes, hostage incident in Texas. You know, uh, somebody took a bank. Oh, okay. Let's see. What was it? The, the, we're, we're looking to the Paralympics. Let's turn in that, you know, which, we divert our gaze because we can't stand it anymore. We're numb. It's like putting, sticking your thumb in a wound. You know, we can't stand it. It's called uh, compassion fatigue. We can't stand it anymore, and so we just take it. America makes the weapons that Assad is using in Syria. There, you ever see these reports on the weapons fairs in the Middle East? It will boggle your mind. The U.S. weapons makers, Northrop Grumman and Colt and Winchester and all the, the high-tech, they build their products, meaning their latest weapons, their, their, you know, big bombs and rocket launchers and uh, bazookas and all the things that they make and laser weapons and chemical weapons. They take them to Germany or they take them to... Uh, where else are they sold? There are markets where they go. And who shows up? All the filthy rich sheikhs and potentates and kings of small African countries who want to use their money to build up their power, they come and they buy bombs by the train load. And that's how U.S. military armament manufacturers make their livings. I've seen the videos of what's for sale and you see these, you know, these potentates, they get out of their stretch limousines and they say, yeah, we'll take a couple hundred of those and 50 of those. You want to demonstrate the latest? They demonstrate the weapon. They go, wow, it already blows up. Yeah, I'll take a bunch of those. And they take them over to their countries and they use them on their people. Where else are they going to get that stuff? China is the answer. Because China and the U.S. are the two arms makers, right? For example, there's one horrific, terrifying example, which is landmines. Landmines? Landmines are used exclusively to blow up human beings. They have no military advantage whatsoever. The only way a landmine blows up is when somebody walks on it and detonates it. And it destroys the lower half of your body. And it makes you, if you're an agrarian person, it makes you a dependent. If you're a dad and you're out in the field working, you're pretty much done and so is your family. 
Because who can feed you? So who makes the the entire world signed an anti-landmine treaty? Because they were seen as evil, right? You sow in the field, and the field is a dead field. How much does it cost to de-landmine a field that has been sown with these evil things? You got the latest is there are big rats that are trained to sniff landmines. This is in Cambodia. They had these big domesticized rats, domesticated rats. They put them on a string, and the rats were really sensitive. And they could smell it, and they were lightened up so that if they stepped on it, it wouldn't go off. And they trained the rat to go out in the field, and it sniffs, and it stops, and it looks up, and it gives them a corn, and the rat goes, and they dig, and there's the mine. But how many trained rats are there? This, I saw the video, believe it or not. So the whole world said, these are evil. Get rid of them. Two countries refused to sign the treaty. Guess who? The U.S. and China. Where are all the landmines in the world made? I guess U.S. and China. That's bad. That's shameful, right? And embarrassing. There we go. So when the karma of that comes around, America is going to be a place where you can't walk safely. Right? Um, there are neighborhoods in Oakland. I was reading last week. Why, why are we on this tangent? Why, where did I go? How did I get this bad wind in my There was a group trying to meditate and get a meditation uh, thing going in Oakland. And they um, had to get the timing of it right because there were certain times a day when people would not come out of their houses for fear of catching a bullet. It's, they, the, the story was, they say, well, we, we don't take our garbage out except a couple hours in the day when everyone else is asleep. Because if we, the other time, like 18 hours of the day, we know that there's a good chance that we'll catch a bullet. Because bullets are flying through the air in Oakland that time of day. So it's like, yeah, there we go. What is the karma of making the weapons that the whole world uses? You get blown up. Your, your territory, your land becomes physically dangerous. We're seeing it happen. Movie theaters in Colorado, college campuses in New Jersey. You know? Wow. So there we go. That's, he says, I should be diligent and wake them up. He says, good grief. That's where we are. That's our world right now. And we're seeing it happen. And, you know, you turn the wheel a couple more times and you look back and you think, how come we didn't notice as it was gradually getting that way? Well, if you read, if you pay attention, you see it's getting that way. Man, oh man. Who's doing that? We are. We're doing that. We're doing that. Dwight D. Eisenhower. President Eisenhower. He used to be called General Eisenhower. He was the head of the Allied Command. He was the man who had charge, along with General Montgomery, or I forget who. Uh, He had charge of coordinating the Allied forces against the Third Reich and Hitler. And in 1944, June 6th, D-Day, the day 
in the Allied invasion of Europe, General Eisenhower was in command. Well, he came back after defeating Germany, and we elected him president. When I was born, Eisenhower was president. And so I grew up knowing about President Eisenhower. Well, President Eisenhower, as he left office, said, I can't quote it, I shouldn't try, but if you could find it in 10 seconds on, on Google. He said, I want to warn the citizens of our country that we are entering an age of a military-industrial complex. He coined the phrase that the army and industry are coming together to create something that we will not be able to stop unless we act now. He said, well, we didn't, and we got it. That the U.S., for some reason, is invested your tax dollars in things that destroy human bodies. We value that more than we value keeping grandmother healthy. Right? Anyway, you understand. The Bodhisattva says, I need to wake people up. I need to wake us up. Why do we do this? Who says we do it? The answer is, our karma says we do it. Somebody asked Master Shrenhua, Shrivu, Shrivu, we've got more atomic warheads than we need, Shrivu. We can blow up this planet like 150 times over. What's keeping us safe, Shrivu? And he said, not much. He said, there will come a time when we blow ourselves up. We've done it over and over again, he said. That's the nature of this world. That's why it's called the Saha world. We've done it all the time. It's just a matter of time. That's why bodhisattvas are so important, he said. So, we said, Shervo, Shervo, that sounds terrifying. What do we do? He said, recite Guanyin's name. Bauda Guanyin Bodhisattva. Okay, so, moving ahead, look at number three. Chang Chiu Zhi Hui Yi Zhong Sheng, Si He Fang Bian Ling Jie Tuo. He sets out seeking wisdom to benefit all beings. He considers what expedience will bring them liberation. It's not a part, it will not be apart from the Tathagata's unobstructed knowledge. That knowledge, in turn, arises from wisdom that is not created. In other words, inherent wisdom. Okay, at that point the Bodhisattva says, boy, I gotta find something that will help. I need to find something that will work to help people wake up. So, what's gonna wake them up? He says, what expedient will bring them to liberation? That wisdom, what does it say? This is really crummy English. I have to say this is coded English. It's mostly Chinese grammar. Why is this so hard to understand? It's because it's English words pasted on top of Chinese syntax. Bu li, not a part, Tathagata's unobstructed knowledge. That's not what it says. What he's saying is, how am I going to wake them up? What will work to wake them up? What method, what technique, what expedient skill will wake them up? He says, well, whatever skill, whatever expedient means it will be, it's going to be tied up with the Buddha's wisdom, his unobstructed wisdom. And that wisdom, that unobstructed wisdom, knowing exactly what to say to wake him up, comes from Wu Shang Hui. What is Wu Shang Hui? 
It's the wisdom that we already have. That's what he's saying. Wisdom that is inherent in you and me. So whatever's going to work to wake them up has to be something that they already have coded on their hard drive. It's going to be a program that you've already got resident on your hard drive. Meaning, something we already understand. Okay, what do we already have? There's an old-fashioned word called conscience that works really well. We kind of have a conscience. What is conscience? Conscience is a little voice. Right? You've heard that voice. I've heard that voice. That's a kind of inherent wisdom. It's not the same as the Buddha's talking about here, the Bodhisattva. But you know what, what I mean when I say every now and then, not everybody and not always, but every now and then we get a little voice that says, you shouldn't do that. Or, that's not a very good idea. <laughs> or, stop. Right? Sometimes we have those little voices. Now, I'm not talking about voices that talk to you all the time. That's, if that's, that's neuro, called neurosis, right? <laughs> that's called mental illness. That's not that. But conscience, right? There was a wonderful film called Pinocchio. Anybody ever see, it's, you can get a lot of Pinocchio on, on YouTube now. It's been there for so long. It's one of the Walt Disney's early movies. You know, the little boy who told lies and his nose grew? Right? Well, Pinocchio had a little friend. What was his friend's name? Yeah. All right. You pass in the midterm. That question will come back for the final. Okay, Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket is the one who sang all kinds of famous songs like, Always let your conscience be your guide. Right? That's Jiminy Cricket. Um, what else? He's got a couple other famous songs. Anyway, always let your conscience be your guide. You, he's telling Pinocchio, this wooden boy, to listen inside. We say, return the light is what it means. That's literal, but it, what it means is listen, introspect. Find out what's going on in your mind. Listen, listen inside. Most of the time we don't, because there's so much stimulation, right? There's so much noise. But if we do, there's, besides a train whistle, there's all kinds of noise. Usually it's the case that we have to block out our conscience. Conscience is talking to us all the time. saying, no, that's not right. Don't do that. Don't hurt me. Right? Or go ahead and do that. That's okay. You know. Um, I was never much into alcohol. I didn't, I know guys I grew up with who drank every weekend. And they were like into hard liquor and stuff. I never, I, I remember once with a buddy, we experimented with, with something from my father's whiskey cabinet, his, his liquor cabinet, and it was scotch or something. I remember the taste of scotch did not please me. It was like black fire water, you know, fire water. And it's like, burns and it's really has that acrid, you know. And we got, fall down drunk and you know, I didn't like that very much either the next day you know it's like whoa 
And I didn't repeat it. It's really funny. You have different affinities. I didn't have affinity with alcohol. I had affinity with other stuff. I won't talk about that tonight. <laughs> you lose your respect for the Dharma master. But, but alcohol was not it. And hard liquor didn't, like a couple, that was it. I like, you know, cocktails and highballs and martinis. And never did it. Didn't do it. And I remember, like, after drinking scotch, something inside said, enough, don't do that. I just, that was this voice, you know, don't do that. And if you always let your conscience be your guide, you, you got a clue to what the Bodhisattva was saying about what wisdom, what's it called, wushan hui. Wisdom that doesn't arise. It's already there. We just have to uncover. For example, all the gold that will ever be pulled out of the earth is waiting under the ground. Are you ever going to get any gold from outer space? I don't know. Maybe the moon or Mars. Maybe the Mars rover will find it. Curiosity. But probably not, right? All the diamonds that are ever going to be mined out of the ground are there right now waiting to be pulled out. We just have to go find it. All the wisdom that you're ever going to cultivate, the Buddhahood that is coming for you, is there right now, waiting for us to cultivate it, waiting for us to bring it out of, the, out of our wisdom, out of our, our wisdom mind, right? We just have to uncover it, cultivate it. So it's there. And it's the same place where the conscience lives, only it's... You know, it's deeper and more profound. And interestingly enough, it's if you want to find it, look where the affliction comes from. Where does the greed come from? Where does that voice that when you see, what did I see today on the streets of Berkeley? A Maserati was riding down uh, Parker. Was it Parker? And I was, you know, coming home from, from Marin County. And there was this Maserati and the guy was... He was, what was he doing? He was cruising Telegraph Avenue, slowly, you know, leaned way back, elbow up. He had to look. I mean, if I had a Maserati, I probably would too, you know. (laughs) Hey, dude. Nice car, man. Thanks, buddy. You want to race? Not on Telegraph. You go, like, you don't get out of first gear in Telegraph. So, yeah, there it was. And I thought, eh, my days of Maseratis are over. I'm not going to, you know. But if you see it, you go, wow, you know. It's greed. That's called greed. I was driving a wonderful Subaru. I like my Subaru. My Subaru looks very nice these days. It's been polished. Really nice. Even the tires, you know. So, greed is, you got to know. you got to know. If you see somebody walking by with an Hermes bag, do you think, do you notice Hermes, right? It's like, Louis Vuitton is supposed to be number one, Taiwan, Taiwan. There are soap opera, there are TV shows, daytime TV shows in Taiwan right now where people talk about name brands, Ming Pai. That's what they talk about, how to get Ming Pai, how to get Louis Vuitton and Chanel and 
Hermes bags and shoes, Jimmy Choo shoes. And it's like, that's what people want. Do you not know that that's greed? Yeah. But we, we override it. We stop listening. We turn a deaf ear to that Maserati-looking greed. You know? Wowie, that's so funny. And the Bodhisattva says, yeah, I need to show people that they have a choice. That they can say, yeah, you know what? Maserati is a really wonderful car. It's Italian. How can it be anything but wonderful? Right? Of course it's a wonderful car. But it's a, it's a vehicle for rich people who can afford it. And it's a status symbol because it goes really fast. And it's really beautiful design. But it's not practical transportation for me, you know. As a college student in Berkeley, as a monk in Berkeley, I don't want a Maserati. Lamborghinis, on the other hand, might, might consider. <laughs> you know, so, anyway, well, what do you give the monk on Ulambana? You know? No, Master, the keys are out there on the table. <laughs> How fast could I get the one for Chung and Lamborghini? Yeah, don't even think about it. <laughs> you know. So, yeah, you know. So that's, that's the voice. And the voice rises. And what do you have to do? You have to go, nothing wrong with Lamborghinis. It's just not mine. I don't envision myself in the driver's seat of a Lamborghini. I don't wonder how that Hermes bag would look over my shoulder. You, know? you don't think, you just like, no, uh-uh. And guess what? It goes on by. One of the problems with Hermes bags, I understand, is now the most expensive ones are made from the skin of one entire crocodile. The most expensive Hermes are made from the skin of one crocodile per bag. So there's a lot of killing karma involved in that bag. Whoa. There, uh, in our community, I won't tell you who, there is... One of our <clears throat> laywomen in our extended DRBA family told me a story the other day. Her daughter has a boyfriend who is uh, out to win her. Don't know whether it's going to happen. She was complaining about her, her daughter. And one of her daughter's suitors is so wealthy that he chartered a private plane to go to Hong Kong to get the latest Hermes handbag before they went on sale so he could fly it back and she could have it 48 hours before they were in the market. So she could, and it was one of those, you know, skin of one crocodile Hermes handbags. She had the, the pleasure of owning it for two days before anyone else could. Now that's worthy of a Taiwanese TV show, boy. <laughs> She's got bragging rights, right? Okay, and in her dreams, that crocodile's going to come and... <laughs> Do you own my bag first? <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> you have bragging rights. So, okay, that's called greed, you know, and it's not free. There's a price we pay for that, and it's what happens to our nature when we seek outside to that degree. Compared to... What do you want 
a bag for? Carry stuff. Okay, I'll get a backpack. You know, get a bag, even a shopping bag. You know, I'll get a big pocket and save all that karma. So he wants to seek wisdom to benefit all beings. He thinks about what's going to wake him up. And he knows it's not going to, it's going to be connected to the Buddha's wisdom, which in turn arises from stuff we already have inside. That's the way to translate that. Right? He's looking for the Buddha's wisdom, and where does it live? It lives inside. That's what he knows now. So, okay, next. He's mindful that wisdom is obtained from hearing. Making such reflections, he urges himself on day and night to hear and practice with no interruption, only taking proper dharma as worthy and important. Understand that this is Chinese syntax, all right? So, what does it say? He knows now what he's looking for. He's looking for the Buddha's wisdom that lives within each of us so that he can use that expediently, skillfully, to wake people up. So now, let's do it word for word, just for fun. You can see the Chinese working here. Here we go. Xin Nian. He, in his mind, he recalls this wisdom from hearing comes. So, he knows what? He knows he's got to find a teacher. He's got to find somebody who can teach him this. Right? Why? He wants to find the Buddha's wisdom to wake people up. So where are you going to get it? One, hearing. Hearing is a synonym here for, for learning. He knows he's got to find a teacher. That's what he wants. Somebody's got to, i got to find somebody who knows, who can tell me where to look for this wisdom. He thinks about this, and he urges himself, herself on. Says, wow, go for it. Go find a Dharma teacher. Find somebody who can teach me this stuff. I am going to keep looking. Looks and looks and looks and looks. This is where um, the chapter 39 of this sutra comes into play. There's the, the next to last chapter of our sutra called the Flower Garland Sutra. And, you know, there are three. There are three versions of the sutra. And if you... We're looking right now at the second version, which is called the Tang translation. It's got 39 chapters and 80 scrolls. That's the way that the Chinese divided it up. And so chapter 39 is the last chapter of the second version. When you look at the third version, chapter 39 and 40 are together. That's the whole sutra. So in this case, it's the last chapter of our sutra. It's the longest chapter by far of the whole text, and it tells a story. It's so wonderful to have this chapter 39 appear because chapters 1 to 38 are the theory of the Bodhisattva path. Chapter 39, one chapter, is the practice of the Bodhisattva path. There's a hero who comes forward. There's a 
a uh, character in the play. His name is Sudana, and his his Chinese name is Shanshai. Good and wealthy, wholesome and wealthy. Sometimes we say good good wealth is kind of the way we first translated. But it's more than that. He's both wholesome and full of of material well well being, material wealth. Shansai, Sudan, call him Sudan. The entire chapter is his story, how he does what? He thinks about waking up and he urges himself on. It's a pilgrimage. It's about a young man, not a baby. He's characterized in, in, the, in the iconography of the sutra. The artists who depicted it painted him as a little baby, Chinese baby. He's not. He's a strapping youth. He's a strong, young, sturdy, tall, handsome young man. But he's called a tongzi. So they painted him in Chinese style as a little baby with little braids. and The sutra describes him as, you know, he's the leader of hundreds of young men. He's, he's their champion. He's their, he's their Olympic youth, you know. Because why? He's going to go for 12 years and more seeking wisdom to many, many, many teachers. He's going to keep going and going and going. And this, I'm, I'm telling you this because I feel like this chapter 39 of the Avatamsaka Sutra is, can, can be read as literature. You can read it as a story, and it holds up just fine. Um, why don't people know this? Because it hasn't been in English. It's only in Chinese. Parts of it are in Sanskrit. And you can find some versions in Silk Root languages. But only Chinese, Korean, and Japanese readers of Han Su, Chinese characters, have had the pleasure of reading the story of Sudana. Um, at some point in our translation progress, we're going to produce this, the, 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 the story version of Sudana. It's an epic story. Epics are a genre of literature, right? The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, the Epic of Gilgamesh. We have them in, in the West. But it's a story of a hero who goes through crisis, challenge, toil, terror, joy, discovery, loss. They always get a wound sometime. They always somehow get, get hurt. And against all odds, they succeed. And they make it. And Sudhana's story is an epic. It's Mahayana Buddhism's epic literature. And I really want people to read it as a story because it's, man, it's got everything. It's got a love story in it. Jupo Shenyu, Jupo Shenyu is a, it's a, inside as Sudhana asks Lady Gopa for her past lives and she tells him a love story. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's, there's terror. He meets these, this Brahmin who climbs the tree of knives and jumps into boiling oil and tells him he should do it too. And he's, this guy's a terrorist, you know. And all the gods, one by one, come and say, no, 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 don't slander. He's a really good Shanjirsha. This is your Kalyanamitra. Do what he says. Every time we did, we got incredible benefit. 
So the Sudhana trembling climbs the tree and eyes and jumps in the boiling oil and he says, Wow, cheats I strange. As soon as I hit that boiling oil, I felt cool. I felt purified. Well done, good man. You faced your shadow and you overcame your fear. Well done. You're a true seeker of Dharma. Rusha Suwei Tirelessly he pursues awakening. Why? Because he wants people to wake up. He wants to help people come out of the prison of birth and death and turn around and look for the door instead of clinging to the walls and the bars. Just turn around and you come out the door. The door has been open all this time. You just didn't want to go out of it. You were afraid to get free. Right? The Bodhisattva wants people to wake up and realize the door has been open all along. We don't walk out. We're scared to get free. It's scary. There's no maps. Well, there's a map. Buddhist sutras are a map out of the jail. We just have to walk it. So, he urges himself on. By day and by night, he listens and listens. Without any break, no seam, seamless listening. He plays the tapes of the Dharma lectures in his car. He downloads the MP3s. <laughs> there must be something here. I keep listening, hoping I'll wake up. No commercials. This is pure Chinese. Only taking proper dharma as revered heavy. That's pure Chinese. Only taking proper dharma as worthy and important. Okay, so that's fine. We're going to improve it. The only thing he values is the Buddha dharma that helps him leave the jail cell. Because he's tried everything else and it didn't hang together. It kept breaking. Buddha dharma won't break on you. Okay, so this is the Bodhisattva's awareness. And um, we're going to continue here next week about what he is willing to trade in order to get the wisdom of the Dharma. We hear about that next. His priorities are changing. So, when you when you look at the sutra this way, um, it's it's alive in the mind. You can see the thoughts of the bodhisattva. More importantly, you can see the heart of the bodhisattva. And. I maintain that the Avatamsaka is uh, a living document. This is timeless. Anybody who has watched their child get sick, um, anybody who has watched your brother or sister or your parents go through a crisis and there's no guarantee they're going to make it, you know the Bodhisattva's feeling because your heart wants 
something to change. And you don't know how. You don't know where the strength is going to come from. There was a, a movie uh, called uh, Mozart's Sister. I recommend if you get a chance to see a movie called Mozart's Sister. It was an art house film. didn't get much circulation. And in Mozart's Sister, Mozart is, you see his, his family. Uh, Mozart, you know, who was a genius at the age of five, is writing his first symphony at the age of five. He was already an accomplished, recognized talent at the age of nine. He, uh, in the movie, casts him as 11. He's 11. And he has a sister who basically is lost to history, but was very, she was his accompanist on the harpsichord, and he was playing the violin and composing. And Mozart's dad was a good, loving father, but he was determined to make his kid his meal ticket. He knew what he had. Only the daughter, his Mozart's older sister, uh, what was her name, Liesel? She was equally talented as her brother, but women weren't supposed to compose. The, this was German society in Europe in the 1800s, and so the dad suppressed the daughter, her talent. She was just the accompanist. And she longed to compose, and she was a genius and brilliant, just like her brother. So anyway, the point of the film is, that, that I was bringing this up was, there's a really touching scene. This, this film is made with real sensitivity and honest film. There's a scene where young Mozart gets measles. And the dad, who is counting on his son, becoming the genius that he knows he, he is, getting him recognized, the dad uh, is helpless as the disease takes its course and shows this, you know, this 11-year-old there covered with red spots with a fever of 104. And the dad is almost helpless to just, to, you know, the doctors there saying, well, you know, their, their methods, they bleed them and things like that. Put him in a tub of ice and stuff. And it's just very touching as the father is just there watching his son be sick. And as the film is really well done, you see the helplessness of the parents watching the disease, you know, run its course. Well, Mozart recovers. He gets better. But you, the, the uh, grief of the father thinking, here's, here's my life, my son, you know, about to die of measles. And there's no childhood diseases that were terrible back then. And the kid gets better. Mind you, Mozart died at age what? 33. 33? So he didn't last long, you know. But somebody made the point uh, that life expectancy up until the last century for the average person was something in the 40s in the West. That life expectancy has just zoomed in the last century. So anyway, it's a very touching film and you can feel the, the grief of someone watching their child go through a potentially fatal disease and the Bodhisattva sees all of us with those red spots on our skin, you know, about to succumb. How am I going to wake him up? What medicine is going to work? 
And so he sets himself the challenge of finding. You go, wow, that's the Avatamsaka Sutra. Sure. Uh, there's a question yeah. on the line. Is the prose not in English successfully not a story of universal worldly and his sister I mean his teacher? Or the same about So, say again, the question is, is chapter 39 the story of universal worthy? Is that the question? Yeah, is the, the prose not in English the story of the universal worthy? Okay, it's a little bit of confusion in the question. Chapter 39 is the story of Sudhana, S-U-D-H-A-N-A. That is Shansai Tongzu. Um, Samantabhadra, universal worthy or universally good bodhisattva, is one of his teachers. Chapter 39, in the third version of the Avatamsaka, resolves into chapter 40. And in chapter 40, Samantabhadra, Bodhisattva, gives Sudhana his final instructions. So chapter 40 is the conversation between Sudhana and Samantabhadra, between good wealth and universal worthy. Okay? And it has been translated twice, fully, once by Thomas Cleary, and it's, it's available, but it's um, full of mistakes. You have to be careful with that one. And also by BTTS, by us. Um, and the problem with that version is it's not complete. We're still working on it. But we are all here part of that process. Tonight, the, the lecture that we gave is really essential to the evolution of this text from Chinese to English. We're part of Buddhist history here as we do this. And it's, uh, it'd be great if we could speed up the process, but in the meantime, this is how it happens. is by all of you taking part of your Saturday to come and listen to the Avatamsaka Sutra in English and Vietnamese here. Um, we do it in Chinese at City of 10,000 Buddhas on Sunday nights. Um, and then we translate it directly on Monday mornings. So that's the process, and bit by bit it's coming. So if any of you feel like you have a, a destiny to, if you have the affinity to join that work, uh, talk to me after the lecture. And if you're online and you hear that, then uh, send an email to, what is it? BTTS volunteers. Volunteer, volunteers. BTTS volunteers at Gmail. B- Buddhist Text Translation Society. BTTS volunteers at Gmail. Okay. We're going to transfer the merit now, and that is on your it's songbook, back of your songbook, and it's also. Um, in the the liturgy sheet that you have there. It works by uh, making a wish, putting it out with your mind into that common space that all minds share and letting it magnify.
Today we had a uh, wonderful experience, I could say, um, over in Marin at the uh, uh, Dominican University. And Yomin uh, Fasher uh, and I went over, and Marion was there, and, and uh, Angela. And, other Dharma friends and about 40 people uh, from all different walks of life, for sure, um, talking about enlightenment and ethical conduct was the topic. And the interesting thing was that the, um, the conference was hosted by the Sufis, the uh, kind of the Chan school of Islam. And uh, these are old friends. I realized that uh, I had done this once before for one of their programs in 2007. And it's the Sufis hosting interfaith. At that, in that conference, it was all about Buddhism. It was called Understanding Buddhism. Right? So... We're called the Institute for World Religions. And here's the International Association of Sufism doing the same thing. There's the culprit. What was the program today? It was... There we are. When you got 12 of them, boy. program was a woman named Prabha who is such an expert on the Bhagavad Gita Song of God that she is the president of the Gita Society which 
is a bunch of uh, like-minded individuals worldwide, and the Bay Area has a bunch of them, people who love the Bhagavad Gita and study it and worship it and revere it, translate it and circulate it. And she's the president of Bhagavad Gita. In the Bay Area, there are hundreds and hundreds of members of the Gita Society. She's the president. She's a housewife who discovered late in life a teacher found her. A teacher picked her out. She was at some sort of conference she wandered into just kind of out of the blue. And this famous guru, spiritual teacher, said, you are the one I've been waiting for. I need to teach you my mantra. And she said, what's a mantra? The teacher said, never mind, never mind. You know, I'll teach it to you. So she did. And sure enough, she discovered that she had a real capacity to hold this mantra, and she recited it day and night, and things started to happen to her. She found the mantra really worked. And so, from that time on, she discovered she had this calling, and she um, became uh, an expert. She memorized the Bhagavad Gita, and taught it, and uh, wrote about it. And she's now, she we brought home a whole box of her CDs and DVDs and lectures and books for our library. And uh, it's quite, quite wonderful to uh, be part of this woman's expertise. And uh, she liked what, what I said a lot because she uh, usually doesn't talk to anybody who knows as much or more about it than she does, about mantras and things like that. Um, or about uh, Dharma. And she kept saying, how did you know about King Ashoka? I didn't think anyone knew. Uh, I was like, okay, yeah, lady. You know, you're not the only one, lady. You know, come on. So and she's a big fish in a small pond, maybe. I don't know. But uh, anyway, so nice to be with her. And so she's the expert about the Bhagavad Gita. And sitting next to her was uh, uh, Hodadad, Kodadad, I can't do his full last name. He is uh, a Persian Zoroastrian who grew up in India. So he's an Indian Zoroastrian from Persia because India, Persia, Afghanistan all have contiguous boundaries, right? They're all together in that part of the world, which is a very Buddhist part of the world, by the way. I didn't mention that to him, but uh, I thought he might not take that too kindly. But there's, uh, there, he's a... Persian, Indian, Zoroastrian. And he talked about Zoroaster and Zarathustra and Ahura Mazda, their god. And uh, he, you know, is an expert on the religion of Zoroaster, which has been around for 6,000 years. It's like, whoa, it's one of the oldest languages. And he was extolling the benefits of Zoroaster and um, lots of things to learn. So here we are, and I was the Buddhist. So we had Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, and Buddhism all talking about ethics. Very, very neat. So I taught them the uh, first thing I did was teach the the Veg Source mantra, which is the cure for greed. 
she she thought all mantras had to be in Sanskrit, and I oh, I'll do one in English. How about that? You know. Oh, lovely, lovely. I have enough. I am grateful. Share the blessings. Hallelujah. May all be fed. May all things flourish. May all awaken. Remember that? I had everybody learn. I have enough. I am grateful. Share the blessings. Hallelujah. May all be fed. May all things flourish. May all awaken. Bodhisattva. Can you all say it? I have enough. I am grateful. Share the blessings. Hallelujah. Ah, there you go. You sound just like holy rollers. May all be fed. May all things flourish. May all awaken. Bodhisattva. That's more like, that's a good Sanskrit mantra, right? Okay, I have enough. Not only do I have enough, I'm grateful for what I have. Thank you. I'd like to share it. May I have enough? I, I am grateful. Share the blessings. Hallelujah. Praise God. Because not everybody's a Buddhist yet, right? May all be fed. May all things flourish. May all awaken. Bodhisattva. Here we go. I have enough. I am grateful. Share the blessings. Hallelujah. So I taught that mantra, and everybody seemed to enjoy being taught a mantra. So. But then I thought, this is what I wanted to share with everybody. Um, we didn't have, we all talked for 20 minutes and then questions and answers. And we didn't really have time to go um, deeply into the application of the ethics that we were introducing from three traditions. And I had, uh, on an impulse, uh, thought about that. What when when the rubber hits the road, when the sandal hits the pavement, how do you apply your ethical values? Ethics is character. And I thought, well, what what's at stake right now? And I came up with these ideas. I think the things that, that worry me the most and where I would like to see people come up with their own ethical decisions and standards that they live by are relationships. That's what is breaking fastest. And it's funny to be speaking it to people who came and grew up in a Chinese-Vietnamese cultural background because largely this is not true for your parents. And it may not be true for you. For your kids, this is true that traditional Asian values, when they come to the West, break up. Here's the issue. Moms, mothers. Here in the West, we have a thing about women 
particularly moms, that, and I excuse me for the language, but women in this culture can be treated as bitches and hoes. And that is increasingly popular for women to be treated as bitches and hoes. Right? Bitches and whores, right? Like, that is about as vile language as you can find. Who are we talking about? We're talking about mom, right? Where your body came from. And we don't hear language about women being treated as goddesses and princesses, goddesses and queens. No, it's below. So you think, okay, let's apply some Buddha Dharma, your ethical standards. What that means is the feminine side of me, I disrespect and put under my feet and stomp on it. Bitches and hoes. That's my compassion. What is the story of Sudhana in the Avatamsaka? He embodies compassion. Compassion comes out of his heart as he goes through 53 teachers. The feminine wakes up. His anima, to use psychological language, comes alive in the Avatamsaka. You can see it step by step, teacher by teacher. Half of those teachers are women. So our culture has got a serious problem. If we treat our own compassionate, nurturing, life-giving side as something beneath contempt, something that we label and abuse. Big trouble. That's a problem. That's where our ethics have to work, right now. Or else we're heading for breakup as a culture. Because it doesn't work to cut out your own nurturing side and continue. You break Two dads. We don't have a positive male role model in our culture. Now, if you are a man, a young man, and you want to find out how to grow up to be a good, wholesome, nurturing adult male person, who do you look at? Well, let's go to the world of sports. First, you got to get a tattoo. Then you got to endorse some tennis shoes. Then you got to take performance-enhancing drugs. Then you got to, you know, endorse Gatorade. And that's not the place. Okay, well, let's look at the world of politics. Surely our national leaders must be good dads. Well, Barack Obama is a pretty good dad. One of the reasons I like him is because he is not embarrassed, ashamed to hug his daughters and. You don't think he's act doing it for the camera. He does it because he loves his daughters. Good for him, man. Vote for Barack Obama if for no other reason than he's a good dad. Not that Mitt Romney isn't, but I don't trust that image that I'm given. I, I think Barack Obama really is that way, is my feeling. Anyway, he's got a good wife. <laughs> That's a good reason to vote for him. I'd vote for his wife, for sure. Okay, never mind. We don't do politics here. Strike that from the record. Jerry, erase that part. Backtrack. <laughs> the monk's talking politics again. So, we have a problem. Where do you go to find good, strong male role models? Well, let's go to the world of entertainment. Thugs and gangsters. The men on the silver screen deal death. You diss me, you die. 
That's not what we're talking about. Okay, well, let's go to the world of, um, how about industry? Wall Street bankers. There's a role model that's toxic and evil. So where do you go to find good dads? Bill Cosby, bless his heart. Who's Bill Cosby? Nobody knows. Bill Cosby, because he's like 80s, right? Bill Cosby is a man who speaks out for dads. And you have a feeling the closer you get to him, the nicer he is. You know, where do you go? Dads are like, number one, absent. And if they're there, they beat you up. That's not the way to do it. Or they lie to you. Or they cheat. Or they're, you know. That's a problem. We don't have anywhere to look for wholesome role models. So here you have, you know, celibate men cultivating the Buddha Dharma, seeking wisdom. Okay, maybe in the Buddha Sangha you find good role models, but they're celibate monastics, you know. So, hey, you Buddhist lay dads, you got a lot of weight to carry. It's on you guys. How to be healthy, kind, strong, patient, vigorous, fair, kind, compassionate, happy and serene. That's a big job. I think the Buddha Dharma is going to be responsible for reintroducing a wholesome role, male role model to our culture. I don't know where else you're going to find it. Religion, you'd hope in churches. You'd hope, and I hope so. Next, that I didn't even get time to bring this one out today. I really want children to be allowed to grow up and have a childhood before they get sexualized, before they can stand it. To see girls at age 11, 12, and 13 having to dress up like a bitch and a hoe Let girls be girls before you make them fantasy objects for somebody to consume. That's wrong. Women, girls are not something for men to consume and spit out. You know, man, that's our future. Those girls have to give us our kids in the future and raise them to be wholesome human beings. Women are not sexual objects to be bought and sold and idolized and talked about for their body parts. It's like, that's wrong, you know. And when you see kids who are allowed to be kids, you know where a lot of that comes from? Sadly, is from diet. Actually, meat and dairy carry estrogen and fast growth hormones. Because why? It makes more milk in the cow. So when humans put it in their bodies, it has a reaction in young girls. They get, they get thoughts more quickly because they've been given chemicals that never should be put into young girls' bodies or old girls' bodies, women's bodies. But 
because the cows will make more milk if you pump them full of bovine growth hormone. So you drink that milk, guys and girls, and it messes us up. So anyway, I would wish that girls be allowed to be 18, 19, and 20 before they have to be thought of as objects of desire. So they can learn stuff and be free and run and have fun as a young person before they get pushed prematurely into these roles that they never should be asked to fill. That's something that our modern culture has done that is wrong, right? And I don't hear people saying it's wrong. That worries me a lot. And, is that enough? <laughs> I would really like to say, and this is the one that's really, because it ain't going to turn around, I would really like young people to be able to find friends that breathe <laughs> and that talk to them and that react to things they say and do instead of friends on Facebook. You know the article that said if your child's awake, he's probably online? True. There's a phenomenon going on in our world. It's not our Western culture, it's our world where kids spend more time online than they do doing any other activity in their lives. Never mind friends. It's like siblings, don't talk to them. Parents don't see their faces, but they will certainly text them. Somebody was giving me the virtue of uh, a free software for iPhone. Well, I'm sure you know what it is, I don't. Where you can create your own virtual text network and you can stay in touch with your family no matter where they are in the world with text message. What's it called? Y'all know? It's, it's brand new. And if you, it's free. And you can like... With a click, you can send out your text message to your own virtual family network instantly around the world. Like that? What's it called? Stay in touch or something like that. Anyway, don't say you heard it from me. Don't go looking for it. All right? It's one further step down that road where, right, it's really true. We spend more time with our digital readouts, with this, this screen. Where'd it go? Where's my phone? I was just tuning my guitar. This is the two-dimensional door to friendship, not the human beings in our lives. We have a monk in the monastery who just got an iPad. Watch out. <laughs> He's using it very well, I might add, to connect to his friends that otherwise he would not be able to. So you can use it well. It's not that technology by itself is bad. But if we use it in re to replace actual human contact, We've been done. We've been had. And it is not going backwards. When do we say, oh, that's enough. I'm going to put that away and go talk to my friends. You go to try to talk to your friends. They're saying, hey, somebody just went offline. What happened? That was you. you know. That has me worried. Because why? That's brand new. History, humanity has never been there before. And we don't know what to do about it. Right? We don't have any rules for that one. So I worry about the way we deal with the feminine in our world, in ourselves, the way we miss and lack a male role model, 
the way kids are pushed prematurely into sexual role models that they never should be asked to, to try to explore. And that we live, we've now replaced human contact with virtual contact. Those are serious worries. And if we don't find some way to bring, to turn that around, I think our culture is going to go into places we will not be able to return from as a culture. I think it's dead end, each of those. Then there's filiality. And Shrifu called filiality the medicine that can save our nation. But filiality requires actual human beings. You know, we don't have a, there's no virtual filiality. So. Anyway, so that was what I talked about today. And it's, um, all of those things are actual worries. Those are serious concerns. So if anybody can find a Dharma principle to help us find our way uh, into relationships that still work, the ones we've known for as long as humanity has been on the planet but suddenly vanished, let me know. My email address or my Facebook handle or my Twitter feed or my blog, uh, my website, uh, all of it, or my telephone. Or you can actually come and find me. Not recommended. Make an appointment. Right. So, yeah, man, there we are. Strange new world we're in. Any solutions? There's an old one. Blueprint for satisfying relationships, but you have to slow down and make your mind quiet before you can hear it. All right. Um, any announcements coming up? What's happening at the Berkeley Monastery? Roundtable was Thursday, our second round of Roundtable. And uh, we've sent out our Berkeley News, Berkeley Monastery newsletter. Angela is here. If you would like to receive our newsletter, see her. Angela, raise your hand, please. Here she is. She'll be happy to collect your news, your email address to send out the newsletter. Thank you to the folks online who have been joining us and following these lectures. Um, our Marty is lecturing on Friday nights, Saturday next. Let's see. The, the, when is the next uh, walking meditation? Phil, who is our Philip Lai, had the flu this week, so we hope Phil will feel better. He's been the guy who's going to carry on since YC and Phan Gehua are in Taiwan this, this month. So the walking meditation will be happening. What, anything else? Any more announcements? Yes, Walk to Feed the Hungry. Is we have uh, flyers in English, Chinese, and Vietnamese to advertise the Walk to Feed the Hungry. The dates for that in San Francisco are? Saturday, the 13th, October. October 13th, Saturday, coming up. And uh, that will be in San Francisco, and there's another one in South Bay. In San Jose, that's on the 14th. San Jose on the 14th. These are, uh, they actually generate. Uh, cash and strength that the Buddhist Global Relief, BGR, um, translates into food to feed hungry people. And if you go on their BGR, what's the website? BGR.org? Uh, Buddhist Global Buddhist, spell it out. BuddhistGlobalRelief.org. If you go there, you can find who is being fed, where are the programs, where your strength goes. So this is a noble thing. Bhikkhu Bodhi is the, ins the inspiration behind the Buddhist Global Relief, and the Walks to Feed the Hungry. It's happening in 11 or 13, 11 different walks this year, I think, around the country and around the world. Mm -hmm. And 
letters before you leave and uh, put them places, you know, particularly around Berkeley. Um, anyway, if, if someone's uh, interested in helping, then please talk to them because some places have been covered and many places have not. So uh, we could use your help. Thanks. Um, there is an event, a series of events that I would like to announce, which is that Professor Du will be um, holding another workshop on how to use C-beta, the uh, digital trapidica, at City of 10,000 Buddhas. Here we go. Um, this coming Monday, the day after tomorrow, uh, at 8.30 to 10 a.m. at City of 10,000 Buddhas. Dulashri will be teaching us again how to use the C-beta Trapitaka. It's in the DRVU conference room of the City of 10,000 Buddhas. And it's good if you can show up with your laptop with the C-beta software installed. That's, that saves time. And you can download it at www.cbeta.org. cbeta.org. You can download the software. And... Uh, there's a Mac version to download the C-Beta reader uh, at the same place. Then, um, Monday, let's see here. Uh, there is... Professor Dew will be lecturing as well in the evening at CTTB on Buddhist education. So, this coming week uh, is a great time to... If you're up at City of 10,000 Buddhas to catch... Uh, some uh, amazing history of the Chinese Buddhist canon and the story of how the C-Beta digital Tripitaka came into being and also topics on Buddhist education of which Professor Du is an expert, hands-on uh, person doing that work at Dharma Drum University and, uh, in, in Taiwan. So that's happening up at CTDB and, and do check if you'd like to know more about that he is here uh, tonight, or you can come and talk to me, and we'll give you the details. Yes, Alan. Okay, tomorrow. Okay, tomorrow at nine a.m. Uh, Honglu, the abbot of CTDB, will be lecturing at San Jose. Nine a.m. All right, I'm going to go to Toledo uh, this week to see my mom. So. But I'll be back on Friday. So, see you all next Saturday here. And as Master Hua would say, if it's the Tao advance, if it's not the Tao retreat, take what's good and what you've heard and put it into practice. Anything that's bad, change it in yourself. See you next week.